Alice Williamson is in the studio. How are you doing? Pretty good. Good morning, Ruby. Um, okay, so we do want to get to some sort of Valentine's Day themed stories, but first we actually have a very interesting, I guess, Australian related story about magpies. Yeah, this is some research that's come out of UWA and was published in Nature, a really um, highly ranked uh, science paper this week. Um, and these researchers have had a look at um, the behaviour of Australian magpies, a particular group who live in a suburb outside of Perth, so suburban magpies, mm-hmm. um, and tried to measure if there's any difference between the cognitive ability, so the kind of general intelligence of magpies that live in smaller groups compared to larger groups. And they found some really interesting things out. Yeah, okay, so what exactly did they discover? Well, really they found out that magpies from this particular study that live in the the larger groups um, seem to be a bit smarter, pretty quite a lot smarter, and uh, they're better or more successful, rather, at breeding than those magpies that live in the smaller groups. I didn't even know that magpies lived in groups. I thought they were pretty solo. No, so they can... Apparently there's a, so different kind of patterns of their behaviour, so they can... Uh, be a bit more nomadic some young males live in nomadic groups but um this particular group of magpies is is typical of some other suburban groups of magpies who who live in quite social groups that have many um different ages so they're multi-generational groups and they can often hang around the same area for quite a few years um if they like uh, that place um, and I guess we've been hearing a lot about magpies because they were voted the, the bird of the year last year. But <laughs> this is just showing us that there's, there's still lots more that we're, we're learning about these, these birds and, and how they behave. How, how big are, are the groups are we talking about? Um, so this was uh, a study that's been taken, that's been, you know, performed over three years. And they were looking at groups of magpies that differed in size from groups of three living together and groups of 12 living together and overall they looked at over 50 magpies and what they did is they assessed their ability to perform four tasks Um, and these tasks were designed to test their level of cognition so um, there were some good controls in place which we always like they didn't let um, they they isolated them they moved them away from the rest of the group so they couldn't cheat and they couldn't whisper any secrets or tweet <laughs> any secrets to their to their friends tweet love it um, but um, they got them to they got them to, to do certain tasks so one of the, these tasks was to look at how well they could control their behaviour so they they put a sample of food inside a, a tube that you could see through and to begin with the magpies try and peck away at the, the tube to get to the food and then they realized actually um, it's pretty durable they're not going to get through that material they have to go and get some food from the top of the tube so they see how well they remember to go to the top of the tube rather than pecking at the side um, which is a bit fruitless Um, and they also did other tasks so for example there was one that tests their spatial memory so their ability to recognize where something is in space and they did this um, well you know it might appeal to people they tested them with a piece of cheese so they hid um, a rather tasty piece of mozzarella in a board that was covered um, in eight places and then they went to they tested to see how well they could remember where the mozzarella was being hidden and it's kind of sealed so they can't smell the mozzarella so it's just a test of of 
of spatial memory. I love the way they went with mozzarella and not just like your tasty cheese. I wonder if it's because it smells um, less strongly, but oh, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see if anyone knows the answer to that one. But what they found was was really interesting in this study. They actually found that across all sets of experiments, the magpies that lived in the larger groups performed much better. And the magpies that lived in the smaller groups, so the groups of three, performed far poorer in these experiments. Um, and they found that also another really interesting uh, piece of information from the study, they found that if, if you performed, if as a magpie you performed particularly well in one of their tests, you were generally a high performer across all of the tests. And this is interesting because it suggests something um, something about general intelligence, which is not and the researchers have stated this in the article that I've linked to from ABC, that um, this is quite unusual. It's a bit of a contentious issue in um, in animals that aren't humans. Um, this idea that if you're good at one thing, you have a higher general intelligence. So there's some really interesting findings in this study. Um, and, you know, there seems to be a lot more, um, there's, a lot, there's lots of rooms for more investigations in the future. How do we know that it's not that smarter birds hang in groups other than... That's yeah. that's a really good question, but the, what what they did in terms of some controls for this is they, they looked at uh, young birds um, and they measured their ability to perform these tests at different stages after leaving the nest, so 100 days, 200 days, 300 days. And what they found is that at first there was no real difference between these groups of, of magpies. Um, and then they found that um, after 200 days, there seemed to be quite a bit of difference in their performance. But you're right, maybe it means that, that you know, they're attracted to uh, smarter groups, but it seems to, to be like a kind of learnt behaviour and not solely a genetic trait. Yeah, wow, that's um, really interesting. But I think there's, the interesting thing about this uh, study, apart from, you know, learning something about magpie behaviour, is that it's still um, a little bit... Um, controversial or contentious because uh, other researchers have found uh, the reverse to be true for group behavior so they found that other groups of birds or animals actually have lower intelligence in larger groups and that's thought to be because you don't need to be as smart because the you know the hive mind the collective mind of a larger group is is better than the collective mind of two birds so there's there's still some kind of uh, room for further investigation in this study and I think they'll definitely want to have a look at different groups of birds because the funny thing about this group of birds is that they were found to completely live together throughout the whole three-year period of the study and some researchers think that actually the levels of cognition in birds could be advanced by hanging around with the same group of birds and learning you know how to interact with those different members of your social network remembering Um, your relationships with each one exactly yeah so they want to do some research now that actually looks at groups of magpies that don't stay together um, in the same group for, for three years, but actually move or you know change between groups. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see whether there's any variance in, in that study. Yeah, that is very interesting. Well, definitely keep us posted on that. And uh, whenever you have a look and see some magpies, check out whether they're in a gang or whether they're by themselves. You're in the midst of Up and Adam, and I have Dr. Alice Williamson with me. Hey. Hi, Ruby. I thought, seeing as you've been feeling a bit under the weather, and it is <laughs> almost Valentine's Day, I'd bring you some flowers today. Oh, thank you. Um, I've 
left them somewhere. They're over in Baltimore in, in a lot, but I'll explain why uh, why they're there just now. So yeah. this is uh, a story that really caught my attention this week, partly because it was a beautifully written piece in the Atlantic and part, partly because I haven't really read much about urban ecology before. And this is what this story is all about. Um, some researchers at the University of Maryland in Baltimore have been trying to do some pretty cool research to see how they can grow um, species of flowers that are perennial so they'll come back without too much well they'll come back every year on um, lots that have been abandoned in the city rather than leaving them you know kind of just covered in rubble or um, kind of sparse grasses uh, in an attempt to really improve the ecology of the city Um, and they've been doing this research for quite a few years now with some interesting results. Why have they chosen vacant lots? I mean, apart from the fact that they're vacant. Well, it's it's the abundance of them in in Baltimore. So there are around 14,000 vacant lots from houses that have been knocked down. So that's a huge number. And there are plans um, by Maryland State to actually demolish even more houses that have been abandoned or are completely wrecked. Um, and to, that's about 16,000. So they're at the state where there could be about 30,000 of these abandoned lots across the city that are covered in various states of rubble or are generally kind of spread with a, a really thin layer of topsoil and then a bit of grass is planted onto these lots. But there are a few problems with doing that. One is just trying to improve the environment, like in terms of appreciation of the environment. It's much nicer to see well I think it's much nicer to see lots of wild flowers flourishing rather than kind of scratchy grasses that aren't doing so well but also um, by picking the right types of flowers or finding out what the right species are there's a real possibility that you could improve the soil because this soil has had a lot of building um, on it. It's it's full of um, bricks that have been, you know, kind of crumbled off these buildings. And this leads to the soil becoming really alkaline and quite hard to grow different species in. And the other problem is that because of all this building work and historic pretty old building work that has a lot of toxic materials in including asbestos or arsenic and things like lead from piping there's a real problem with having uh, these these kind of um, sort of pollutants in this ground in terms of runoff because if the ground becomes saturated and you know the water flows from this ground ultimately ends up in in rivers and streams the bay area of baltimore then it transports these um, toxins into the the water system and ultimately into some of the foods that that people eat and can flowers somehow reduce that well what they can do if if you pick a species and this is what some of this research is about um by chris swan and his team from from maryland university if you pick flowers that are particularly good at extracting water from the ground it means that there isn't an abundance of water to kind of carry these deposits somewhere else so it means that they can be more localized rather than contaminating the systems and there are species that um that can actually use um so for example plants are full of different uh, metals that they need metals to 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 function for their for their for their systems to to stay alive so they can pull out different ions from the soil too so It's particularly the water that they're looking at in the study, the ability to pull this water out of the soil. Um, But it's a really interesting program. And one of the things that they touch on is um, from this research, and this is, I think, what appealed to me as a scientist, is that there are a lot of projects in a lot of places and really well-intentioned, really positive projects that aim to improve um, 
urban areas. So planting, you know, uh, gardens or planting trees or trying to make places a bit more like play parks for kids to enjoy. And these are really, really great initiatives. And what they comment on in this in this article is that lots of these initiatives are driven by landscape architects rather than scientists, rather than ecologists. And while that's really great because it's quite a quick solution to these problems, it means that we're not doing much research about what are the best species to plant in these areas. What should we strategically be planting to improve the environment, to improve the soil, to increase pollination and bring bees into the area, which we know is a real, you know, really big problem at the moment is to try and look after the bees. And the, you know, these researchers really articulate well that it's because the process of science is pretty slow compared to, you know, uh, running in and transforming an area and I'm, I'm not critical of that at all but what they're doing is they're taking the time over maybe 10 to 15 years to have these control plots that don't have any wildflowers planted on it and have these different species planted on different plots and to see how well uh, these wildflowers can flourish and what effect that might have on the the ecosystem of the city. Was it easy for them to get these plots? No, no. I think that I think it's been a challenging project. So they they articulate this in in the article really well. What what they're saying is, it's actually really rare to hear of urban ecologists, and part of that's because um you know because of the sense of ecology being out in nature and you know in in the countryside. Part of it's because it's really difficult to do these sorts of experiments. So they've had to you know engage the council and and convince them that they should be able to take over some of these lots for science. Um, They've also had to be able to leave control, so to do some good work on some lots and to, to leave others languishing which is you know looks a bit, it's a bit confusing to say why haven't you d- just done something fantastic with all of them yeah. and then local people some of them don't like the wildflowers that have grown some of the <laughs> some of the species that they've picked have grown too high so they've been really careful to try and pick species that only grow to about the length of a ruler about 30 centimeters um, and also some people just kind of think it looks a bit unkempt and untidy when it's actually the idea is to grow this kind of natural looking meadow um, and and they've come across a few challenges. So, for example, um, they mentioned that there was a local visit by a mayor um, who'd come to see something in the city. And the council just mowed one of these uh, like con- these experimental grounds because they obviously thought it looked a bit untidy and unkempt, mm. but it was part of the experiment. But counter to that, they've also had a lot of really, um, you know, excited and engaged neighbour neighbours who've been excited to see some of the wildflowers they remember from trips to the countryside um, or maybe from living in the country in their younger years that have really taken over these cities and um, you know if the bees come and you're a local gardener then that's good news for your garden too because it means that your plants are going to be pollinated more frequently. Yeah well maybe in like five years ten years down the track Baltimore might be one of the most romantic cities in the world up there with Paris. Yeah maybe. Walk the streets. Yeah well um, if it's full with native flowers it's certainly going to be something that's much nicer to look at than you know abandoned lots and might attract people to come in and develop the area again because these lots are only going to be there until somebody comes along and says you know i want to develop this area and that's what the state government are really hoping for to regenerate the city and and to grow the population again Absolutely. And we are running out of time, but I wanted to talk about Romeo. (laughs) This is quite a sad story, but also very cute. Uh, It is a cute story. So this is Romeo, who's thought to be potentially the last member of a species. And that's where the sad sad part 
comes in. The frog, a uh, frog species. Uh, yeah, frog species. Yeah. Um, he's uh, a Siwenkus frog um, from Bolivia, and he's been living in a natural history museum for a while, and apparently he's been calling out for a mate for nine years. No! Um, and so uh, people are really keen to find um, this find a female in the lakes or rivers or well rivers or streams rather of of Bolivia um and uh, a dating site has got involved so match have have written him a, a dating profile as part of a, a bid to raise some money to help people Aww. find this this frog and it's it's got a, a pretty good opening line which I'll just read for you now it's um, <laughs> Not to start this off super heavy or anything, but I'm literally the last of my species. <laughs> no pressure, no but pressure. we need to repopulate ASAP. Exactly. Pretty much. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to share the dating profile on our Facebook page up for it on FBI Radio. So chuck us a like and you'll be able to see the pic. Thank you so much, Dr. Alice, for coming in for another week of Up and Adam. No worries. See you next see week. See you next week.